This podcast was made using Descript. Descript is a one-stop shop software to transcribe, edit, record, collaborate, and share your videos and podcasts. It makes the editing process a breeze. I use Descript to edit video to the transcription of my video rather than the timeline. Then I can collaborate with my guests on drafts of the interview and easily make clips that I share to social media. If you're interested in making videos of any kind, I highly recommend checking out Descript. You can find a link to the Descript app in the show notes. Welcome to The Big FU. I'm your host, Erica Cantor. This is a show all about fucking up and failing up. I'll be interviewing comedians, artists, entrepreneurs, and generally speaking, people I find interesting about the early parts of their careers to learn how they fumbled their way into various measures of success. Today, I am talking to Alex McAtee. Alex is a producer at Point Grey Pictures, which was founded by Evan Goldberg and his best friend Seth Rogen in 2011. Alex produced Pam and Tommy, Black Monday, and American Pickle, Long Shot, The Disaster Artist, Sausage Party, and The Interview. Holy shit, that is a stacked list of credits. Clearly, she is capable and brilliant. I was drawn to interviewing Alex when I found out that she failed out of Muhlenberg College and was fired early on in her career. Then she started working in freelance production and somehow turned that ship around. Alex proves that when you tune in, figure out what you care about, and pursue that, whatever happened before cannot stop you, so you gotta keep going. I feel inspired because when she talks about her failures, she really takes ownership for them. It takes a lot of work to recognize what's your fault and what is circumstantial. Being able to look at your past with that sort of grace and compassion is really beautiful. Alex and I talk a lot about being a woman in a male-dominated space. This is something that extends so far beyond movie making. I know that this is going to be relatable for a lot of people. She clearly just has a desire to create things that diversify the common mainstream perspective. You have to be in it to break it. That's what a friend said to me last night and it really resonated with me. I'll amend that to say you have to be in it to add to it and to contribute. I am so excited to share Alex McAtee's story with all of you, and I hope that you are as inspired by it as I am. Alex McAtee, welcome to The Big F You. Thank you so much for having me. We got a big Hollywood producer with oh, us today. Oh, gosh. Oh, brother. Um, <laughs> thanks. I should say, you know what? Thank you so much. I, I blanch at that because I'm like, big Hollywood producer. Like, what is it even whatever and you, know. you had a crazy road to get here mm. I feel like that's why I originally reached out to you yes I believe so because I listened to you on a different podcast yes and I realized that you had failed at a school yes been fired from your first two jobs the y- first job yes yeah that's right and somehow I got it. To- <laughs> yeah I got it together much to my to my mother's um delight Right. A little context going into the failing out of school and school being college. I graduated from high school. Right. I, have a do- I have a high school diploma. Okay. <laughs> Even though I had an uncle who worked at Sony for many years when I was in middle school, 
just the idea of working in t- and just for the audience, my dog is walking around and you might hear him a little bit. What's um, his name? His name is Avon Barksdale. Avon Barksdale. Yeah. What's up, Avon? Yeah. He's a scruffy little guy. Um, He is. I don't know what he's doing. Anyway, I grew up loving TV film, didn't ever really think of it as like a job on the list of jobs. And that's partially sort of like my own thought constraint. That's also, yes, partially, you know, it's easier to imagine yourself doing something if you know people or to see people like you doing it, right? Right. And... It's also partially just being like, well, that's something I love a lot. I couldn't possibly be able to have that, you know? It's like what I want too much. Um, It could never happen, which are all sort of like my thought issues, right? I'm sure there are people who grow up in the same situation and are very like, oh, like, oh, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to do it. And I just didn't have that at the time when I was growing up. So when I went to college, I didn't even think like, maybe I should go to school for TV film, you know? I didn't even engage with that idea whether, you know, NYU or USC or Emerson or whatever school. Was there a specific track that your parents were pushing? I think the idea was like general liberal arts, go figure it out, right? Right. So I graduated high school in 2001 Mm -hmm. in Dallas, Texas. And I went to a very preppy all-girls school. And thankfully, my parents had the money to send me to college without having some sort of real direction in the idea. And I was always a terrible student. So I think for my parents, just the idea that I got into college, they were like, she'll just go and she'll, you know, you take some classes and you see what you like. Yeah. That'll help inform the path, right? So my parents weren't like pushing on me anything other than go to college. Because if you go to college, that's how you, you know, get a good white collar job, right? Mm -hmm. Is you go to college and you get a degree and then you'll get hired easier than if you didn't go to college. That was really the only idea. Right. I tend to be a bit of a people pleaser. I've now realized about myself and... So I was like, okay, well, I'll do the thing you're supposed to do. You know, I'll go and I'll take some classes and I'll figure it out. And what I didn't account for was like when I got to school being like, oh, wait, nobody knows if I go to class and the teachers don't really care and I don't really get in trouble. I'm not going to go to this class. So I sort of slowly stopped going to class and eventually they were like, the dorm is not an apartment. The dorm is for students. You don't go to class here. You need to yeah. go home. So so failed out, got kicked out, moved home. I was going to Muhlenberg in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Do you remember what it felt like to be kicked out of oh, school? Oh, brother. Oh, of course oh, I do. Oh, brother. Oh, it was <laughs> oh, no. so bad. I mean, now looking back, I'm like, holy shit, that's a wild thing to do. You know, yeah. it's like a really crazy to just be like, I'm just going to stop going to class <laughs> and then just be like, I don't know, I guess I'll get in trouble at some point, but I'm not in trouble today. So it's fine was kind of what I was doing. And yeah, up to that point was definitely like the worst thing that had ever happened to me, you know, yeah. and by happened to me, I mean, created for myself, <laughs> did to myself. Were you partying? Were you social or were you just yeah. sitting oh, yeah. in your dorm? Um, I was very social. And, you know, I found that every time I skipped a class, like one of my friends had a class, they just didn't have a class at that time. So there was always something to hang out with. You yeah. Know what I mean? And in the movie Reality Bites, the Winona Ryder character uses her gas card she has from her parents she does a scheme where she fills it up on people's up on their on their card and then they give her the cash and it was how she was raising money for at a certain point in that movie and I just had a mobile card and I was going to mobile all the fucking time (laughs) anyway so no I was super social like hanging out with friends and doing stuff I just wasn't going to class right and with no real plan about what was I going to do when like this is at some point going to catch up with me and that was just not something I was really engaging with I did that on a mini level yeah 
I decided my sophomore spring that I was done with physics lab. Okay. And you had to take the classes concurrently with the lecture. Mm. And I calculated what my GPA would be if I failed. Yeah. And I was like, great, Fuck I'll it. take it. Yeah. Yeah. And then my parents were the ones who were so angry at me that, and they made me call the school and try and figure some shit out. Right. And the dean of the engineering school was like, you know, I've seen a lot worse. Right. You're fine. You're fine. It's okay. You like 0. 0.3 of a credit that right. you don't need. Like, Amazing. I love that. That like the, the dean was like, it's really not yeah, that big Yeah, he was like, it's deal. really not a big deal. Love that. Thank you, dean. Yeah. yeah I'm sure dean your Holgrim, parents were like, out what there. the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you go to school? Northwestern. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Did you go for TV film or anything like no, that? No, I was studying engineering. Oh, wow. But because there's a TV film community there, yeah. that's how I got into it. Because it. friends started asking me to do things. And then I was like... Oh, this is fun. Yeah. yeah. And the first improv class I took was improv for engineers. Oh, well, there is such a thing? Well, so they, the engineers, they were like, you guys don't have any social skills. Right. So you guys have to either take public speaking, swing dancing. Uh, oh, wow. I took like a meditation course. Got it. Something to be a more well-rounded yeah. human. Yeah. And you had to take two of those. Wow. And so I took one that was strongly leaning into meditation and one that was strongly leaning into improv. Mm. And after that quarter, I was like, fuck everything. Like right. this is not for me. And yeah. I just started doubling down on writing. That's awesome. I love that. See, that was probably more in my parents' mind. Like you take some classes and you figure yeah. it out. Right. <laughs> that was, I think more what they were thinking. And mine was like, Oh, you take some classes and you figure out you hate school. You always hated school. You never yeah. wanted to be here. You shouldn't have come in the first place. So how do I get out of it? I guess I'll just stop going was really what I did. Right. Right. I didn't want to be there. And so I took the very, very long road out instead of just having what might have been a conversation with my parents about, I'd love to go to, you know, to school for TV film or... Was that a thought in your brain? No. I mean, I guess I didn't really have an understanding of like, you could go to school for that, you know? So what does that even mean, going to school for TV film? Like, how, you it's know? It's kind of funny because it like kind of gets into the Nepo baby conversation a mm. little bit because it's like, well, if your parents are on set all day... Yeah, you might think about doing that a little bit more than any other person. Absolutely. And like just the idea, I think maybe now more than when I graduated high school in 2001, there's an understanding of like those programs existing, you know? Yeah. Um, and not that our systems are fair. And right. That is the heart of the conversation is people who are unaware of their privilege. Yes, yes. But it does tend to check out that it's like my mom is a vet and my dad worked was like in business like yeah. there was no concept of, of that yeah 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 my uncle who he was the head of post at sony for many years in the 90s that's so cool i always thought it was really cool and like removed and like yeah. uncle jimmy and that's so cool but i didn't really sort of even think about until and i'll get there like later on when i was already out here but i I failed out. I moved home. I was very aimless for a year and a half and was going to community college, not really going to community college, <laughs> and wasn't sure what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. And in that time, my dad died. That made me even more aimless. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, thank you. And then one day, my cousin who works worked at Neiman Marcus Corporate, which mm -hmm. is in Dallas, got an email from someone she used to work with that was sent to him by his ex-boyfriend, like this crazy chain of people. Right. And this is in October of 2004. That Entertainment Tonight was starting a new TV show called The Insider with Pat O'Brien, and they were looking for PAs in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I was like, well, I have family that lives in LA, so I have a place I could stay if I were to move. 
And I love, loved and love celebrity gossip. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, great. I could, and I know what PA is like entry level. I don't know what right. they do, but I just know what's like at the bottom. So great. So I, there was like a phone number to call an interview. So I interviewed over the phone on like a Thursday and the guy was like, well, you sound like you could be good for the job, but you don't live here. And literally the next day I like packed my car up with my cousin, Mary Jean, and we drove out to, to LA and we got here on Sunday and stayed with my aunt and uncle in Studio City. And I called on Monday and I said, hi, I live in LA now. And I'm sure he was like, what? Like, <laughs> you're a freak. You moved. He was probably very impressed. I I mean, I'm sure he was impressed and scared to be yeah. like, you just moved. Like, that's a big, that's a life decision. But I packed a few weeks of stuff. Maybe it wouldn't work out. You right. know, is this like a real move I'm doing mm-hmm. or what's happening? And anyway, so I called on Monday. I went and I got the, I interviewed on Wednesday. And then Friday he called and said I got the job. And then the next Monday I was starting. So it was like in a week and a half, I heard about the job, moved interviewed, got the job and was working as a PA in the tape vault. And it was just like finding tapes to queue up as they put together, you know, whatever the inter- the news story was. And right. so this was to date this, this is like Jen and Angelina dating and Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. So there's like a uh, lot of that that I remember very well because I was working it's at It's like the a Insider. legendary period. Holy shit. Yeah. So, and like, it was the beginning of Perez Hilton when it was page666.com. Right. So it was like, and you know, I remember like the Paris Hilton was like, I think it was one of the first videos on TMZ, I think is how it launched was she was like driving and drunk and ran into a car. And so all of that, 2005, all of that, I was that working. Was you. In, yeah. Oh you yeah. That, that was happen. me. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. God bless you for your work. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was I was working there and you know, I think as crazy of as a move as it was, it was one of those things that has happened a few times where I'm like, oh, you see an opportunity and you just like have to just do whatever it takes to grab it because, you know, as crazy as it was to merely interview over the phone and decide to change my life based on that. What else did mm-hmm. I have going on? You know, not someone- not enough to keep me there. Did someone advise you to make that move? Yeah. I mean, I think my mom was super supportive. I mean, one, I had and still have family that live here in right. LA. So again. It wasn't like a crapshoot. Like you're No, going, I'm not in the yeah. middle of nowhere. I'm staying with my aunt and uncle. There's some amount of a safety net. And listen, if it doesn't work, come back. You know, like right. it doesn't have to be you move there and then, you know, you never come back and I never see you again. You know, being post failing out of college, community college, kind of also skipping those classes. Because if I didn't go to class at Muhlenberg and Allentown, why am I going to go to community college class in Dallas? <laughs> anyway, I think it was kind of like, what do I have to lose at this point? Not a lot. Might as well try. So she was super supportive. Did and you have to explain away your failing out of college. I wasn't proud of it, you know, and right. I think now I've super come to terms with it because I've gotten to a place in my career where I'm like, it's all right, you know, and I didn't need the degree clearly. So like, mm-hmm. it's okay. Um, and also, you know, there's a myriad of paths, right? Which I think is part of what right. we're talking about. There's so many ways to get different places. And so mine involved that and I've come to peace with it now. But at the time I was, felt shame for like going to college and yeah. having parents who could pay for it. And just be like, go figure it out. And like me not being able, I guess I could have forced myself to do it. I just was like unwilling to, you know. How do you feel that shame fueled you in this new career path? I mean, even both to shade, but not to shade the insider. It's like the opportunity to work at the insider. I've had a ride, <laughs> like, you know, 
It's not a creatively a show that spoke to me. Right. It's like working in TV in Los Angeles. I got a job doing it, and so I wanted to get it right. I will say I did a similar thing. And I'm trying to remember exactly what it was because I, I got fired from that job, and part of it was like, I get, I could have been a better employee, sure, but it was also a bit like they'd gotten a new boss and there were like, everyone who, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of people who were working that job were not mm-hmm. taking it as seriously, which, what, it kills surprise, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm not going to take the tape vault seriously. Like, yeah, right, you're right, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, I just got a new boss and there was a bunch of people who were sort of slacking off in different ways. And so I think it was a little bit of like making an example out of me. Could I have also been a better employee? Sure. Right. So I was super freaked out when I lost that job because it was like, what am I going to do? And I think I'd worked there like a year. And then I was like, who can help me get a job? And my uncle's assistant, um, his old assistant, she used to be his assistant. And then she left and she started working in production. Mm -hmm. And I got in touch with her and she was going to production coordinate a new pilot. So she hired me as the PA. Nice. And so I became, so I was, that was my next job. I was a PA in the office during early, early prep and shoot for this pilot for MTV called Stereo Sound Agency, which was, I guess, MTV had this like mandate where they were trying to like include skateboard culture into more of their shows. God, that sounds so lame. <laughs> and so... But it also sounds so on brand. They're like, how do we reach, yes, the yeah, skateboard, they, the counterculture How youth. do we reach the kids, yes. you know? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. So it was the actor Jason Lee of like Kevin Smith movie sure. fame and his wife, Beth, I don't remember her last name, and then a friend of theirs, don't remember his name at all, the three of them had started like some sort of skateboarding company called Stereo Sound, I think is what it was called. And so the idea for the show was a half hour sort of variety sketch show, hmm. but it like the sketches would involve skateboarding or something. God, it's like such a tenuous link to skateboarding. You're like, then there'll be a skateboard in the sketch. And you're like, <laughs> okay. It's not even that it would appeal to people who skateboard. It's like... Everything has to involve a skateboard. You're right. just like, this is so literal. Anyway, so I was a PA in the office on that. And man, I was doing stuff not in a, well, maybe illegal technically via like what I was hired for, but I was like essentially the location scout, which is absolutely insane, not being paid for it, of course, like mm-hmm. what I was doing, the work I was doing. And like, I remember this is, you know, before. You were unpaid. I was paid as a PA, but I was doing a lot of work PAs shouldn't right. be doing. Yeah. Again, I was like essentially the location scout for the pilot and I wasn't being paid as a location manager or something. Right. Okay. You were just and being paid, paid as a rate. PA. Yeah. yeah. And, but I was doing a lot more than just PA work. But of course I didn't know. And, yeah. and this was also. You never know until you never someone know. tells you. Oh no. Until I like, got older oh, and I was like, holy that. shit. I was like, yeah, oh my God, they work. They got a lot out of me and I just didn't know I was just doing it. Yeah. And was like trying really hard. And, you know, this was at least, I'm like, oh, it's a pilot for MTV. That's cool. You know, I was like so excited about that. And after having been fired from the first job, I was like, fuck, I got to get it together. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember at one point it was like 5 a.m. And I'm in like neighborhoods in East L.A., especially then I should not have been in like taping up signs. I didn't know that I shouldn't be there. You know, I was just like doing the thing I was supposed to do to like put the location signs up for people. So that kicked off for me a few years of freelancing in production. Then there were these two women. They were like the woman who helped me get that job, who's the coordinator. They were her bosses. It was like Mm -hmm. the line producer and the UPM of that pilot. I got to know them a little bit. They took me on to the next job where I was the coordinator for a talk show pilot. 
And I met a guy there, Noah Mark, who I worked with for many years. He took me on to that next job. So once you meet people, yeah. and that's what you hope for in freelance, is like, oh, you meet people, they and see you're competent, the they thing. like you, right. they bring you on to the next thing. So maybe it's not even them who brings you on to the next one, but someone else you meet. You know, that's ideally how it works. So I had a few jobs like that. Um, uh, the Showbiz Show with David Spade I worked on for one season, two seasons, something like that. Was there a moment that you felt like it really clicked and you were like, okay, this is happening and I'm here and I'm going full force and I can leave that history behind me? The history of... Failing out of school, getting fired from that first job. Yeah. And like, okay, I'm out of the woods. I mean, the feeling of letting that go a bit came more once I started working in like production offices on features where I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I can do this. But I still, as much as I was okay just being like, I don't really know where this is leading or how this is going to get me to the job I want, which what is the job I want? I don't even know, you know, but I wasn't as much as I wanted to figure it out. I wasn't preoccupied with it where I like turned down jobs or felt I was above something because of what I ultimately wanted to do. I mean, I worked many production office jobs on features and I worked with a lot of people like that. And it's like, it's just miserable for everyone them the people who work with them you know to work with someone who thinks they're better than answering the phone or stocking the fridge or putting the paper in the printer or whatever the fuck it is then don't be here i guess i don't really want to put paper in the printer yeah i don't actually care but i care because i want to do a good job and you know working in the office on a movie is still working on a movie i don't know where it's gonna go but certainly doing a good job is gonna get me somewhere better than doing a bad job is yeah and I wasn't someone who had like writing or directing I was doing on the side, which a lot of people do, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, this is my day job. I just work yeah. this so that I can go write or improv classes or direct a short with my friends or whatever that is. I didn't really have that. And I was sort of figuring out, well, I think I want to be a producer, but there's so many different kinds. What do they do? You know, if you stay in the production office, that leads to line producer. And I was like, I sure as fuck don't want to do that. <laughs> Sorry, line producers have such a hard job. I respect them so much. And I would <laughs> never want to do it. It is t- so hard and often thankless and like Can you seems define really difficult. what a line producer sure. is? Sure. Line producers, and I call them line producers, I assume, because of budget lines. You're in charge of the budget. Yeah. And it is so hard and complicated and... You know, every department head comes to you for money. And ultimately, the line producers then come to the producers at the production company, their studio, to, you know, get budgets approved and move money around and figure out how to save money and how to get money and all that sort of stuff. But they're in charge of the budget. And ultimately, the um, oftentimes the crew and not necessarily hiring department heads, that usually falls more to the producers. But sometimes they su- they suggest people. And, yeah. But man, oh, that's a hard job. A hard fucking job. That's a hard fucking job. And... As much as you have to be creative to figure it out, you're not necessarily as creatively involved in what you're shooting, you know, and like the script and you can have an is, impact, but not in the same way as creative producers here at, at Point Grey do. Is that person also building the budget? Yes, they build, they put the budget together. Okay. Yeah. So they're building it and then managing it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what you do now that you are a producer here? Sure. And the many hats that you wear? Yeah, I mean, it's different on every project, mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part, I will receive material from managers or agents mm-hmm. and, you know, decide if I feel like it makes sense for Point Grey. 
I'm not the ultimate decider. I go to James Weaver, who started Point Grey with Evan and Seth. Right. But they're very supportive. And if you're super passionate about something, then even if they like, I'll say, don't see it in the same way you do, that they'll figure out a way to engage with it. Because you're, we, I, Josh Fagan, Lorelei Alanis, yeah. whoever else here is super passionate about it, which is great. And part of the reason why we've all stayed here so long is because you can bring in projects and have your own little slate that's like your taste and yeah. material. And so I'll do that. Then once we've engaged and we've attached, you know, give notes to try to creatively make it better as well as get it sold. I mean, that's really the combination of art and commerce that we all seek to figure out. That's that's most of my job. So you receive a script. Yes. And you decide that you guys like it and then you purchase it from a writer, right? Well... How does that process work? It's a great question. Like to be attached. Yes. It's a great question. So when we attach onto something, we just say, we want to move forward with this. And you have to be explicit about how you want to move forward. Sometimes it's like, well, we're just going to develop it and we're going to see if we want to take it into Lionsgate, who Mm -hmm. are our partners, our studio partners. Mm -hmm. We have a first look TV and feature deal there. First look means we show it to them first. If they don't like it, we can continue on. Other people have an exclusive deal where if they don't like it, that's done. So given the track record, we were able to get a first look deal so we can continue on with projects even if Lionsgate's not interested. So that is when a financial and legal deal gets put in place is once we take it to Lionsgate and they want to move forward with it. Mm -hmm. If they don't, then we can talk about, does it make sense to try to go attach a studio? Should we just go straight to buyers? Often many streamers- buyers be? So streamers or cable networks. Okay. Or broadcast networks. We just haven't had broadcast success yet, (laughs) but- But yeah, the buyers are the streamers and cable networks. But when we attach to something, we are saying we want to move forward with this and we want to, you know, talk about, try to see if we should be getting this made, right? And sometimes Mm -hmm. we'll be like, well, let's work on it and see how it goes before we agree to take it to Lionsgate. Sometimes there are projects where we say, we're going to take it to Lionsgate and if they don't like it, we're not going to move forward. Okay. And then sometimes we say... I love it. We're taking it to Lionsgate. You know, let's, how quickly can we get in there? You know, right. it's a varying levels of engagement based on, yes, the attachment to the material, sometimes how far along the material is, who the person is. Is there, you know, multiple attachments with like mm-hmm. a writer and a director and an actor? You know, that happens sometimes. So, and then once we're on, like I said, sometimes I hear a pitch and then we have to get like a document together. Or sometimes they're writing a script on spec, right? Which is for free. Mm-hmm. And that often comes with either someone who is more green. And so you're like, we need to show it on the page. Just a pitch is not going to do it. Yeah. Sometimes you can sell an idea to Lionsgate and they'll pay the person to, to write it before you go out to a buyer. It's oh, different with every, every, and this is like people in entertainment, every project has its own journey and life and none of them are the same. We all have our own journey We are all our own healing journey, man. <laughs> Yeah, so that involves a lot of reading and notes, which I always laugh and say it's super ironic that I failed out of school and now my job is to take read so much homework. And take notes. Oh my God. And then do a prep to make sure we're prepared. And like, did you bring all the materials and get it all down and like write more notes? You know, but listen, I wouldn't do it at school because I didn't care and I wasn't engaged enough with what I was doing. And now I do it all the time because I love it, you know? So what fires you up? You were saying that you guys all have your individual taste. Mm. And this is a question that I wanted to ask earlier. Yeah. You were saying that growing up, you loved television and film. Yeah. So I guess this is a two-part question. Growing up, 
what were the things that you were like, I want to make that. Yeah. And then now mm. what are the things that really get you sure. going? Sure. I mean, comedy for sure. You know, I think growing up like the Christopher Guest movies and all Adam Sandler's early stuff and Chris Farley and coming to America and mm-hmm. uh, the jerk. I remember, I think it was like within a week where I saw Austin Powers and Romy and Sh- Michelle's in theaters. And I was like, this is the life. And I was like, this is, this is cinema. Uh, so I have always loved comedy. Um, yeah. I mean, Simpsons was a huge influence and King of the Hill. I love so much. I'm from Texas. So that's part of it, but it's also just so fucking good. Anyway, tons of comedy stuff, and I always loved animated stuff, too. But both of my parents, I mean, my mom watches Turner Classic Movies every night. She's watching some new old movie, and my dad loved movies, so my brother does, too. I think we just consumed a lot of TV and movies in our household, and sports, just generally a lot of, like, pop culture. So I'm definitely drawn to comedy, and in terms of stuff I get excited about now... There's a little bit of a hard to put your finger on it where I'm like, stuff that's really good. And you're like, okay, well, what's good mean? And I'm like, I don't know. You know it when you see it a little bit. But I do love something that doesn't, that feels whether it's unexpected, whether that means like a point of view we haven't heard from saying, as I said, new point of view on something that like a story maybe we've heard before, but not in this way or something that feels super modern. Again, something you've seen before, but sort of like subverted or the more left of center, sort of weirder, fucked up stuff. I mean, we haven't gotten too much into what I would call absurd sort of Tim and Eric, you know, ab- the production company, absolutely. That sort of stuff. But, you know, I've always what been a fan. What do you mean by that? Absurdist. Yeah, absolutely. Tim and Eric. Do you know Tim and Eric? Tim and Eric had a show on Adult Swim for many years, mm-hmm. and they sort of do, you should look them up, and they have like this, when I say absurd, a sense of humor, things that are um, askew, that are not grounded. It's like very an heightened, airplane vibe? But weirder. So like okay. Eric Andre show, you know what I mean? Love like that. That's, yes. Right. So like very avant, things that are like sort of artsy and weird and very like bizarre it's stuff that my mom would watch and go, that's weird. Ew. Why are you <laughs> watching that? You know, that sort of thing. And I'd be like, because it's weird. And that's like kind of cool. You yeah. Know? So like, I remember the first time I saw the movie Toxic Avenger, if you've ever heard of it. No. Very famous cult classic B movie. And you this know, is great. This is giving me a list. Yes. Yeah. Watch all of this. A great place to start with Tim and Eric. And this is, I'm interrupting myself. Something that's like a kind of easy to digest from them. They did these series of commercials with Zach Galifianakis for Absolute Vodka. Okay. And they're like perfectly them and very funny and really weird, but like not as weird as some of their other stuff. So like it's a nice entree into them because it's like very funny and very silly. You know, I think that's a lot of it too is like silliness. So wait, what was I saying? I interrupted myself with the Tim and Eric thing. You were I was talking, talking about, about your taste. Oh, yes. But I was talking about Toxic Avenger and just like stuff that was kind of weird and considered alternative. I was always drawn to. Part of that, I think, is because growing up in Dallas it's and the school I went to, which I loved. It was an all-girls school, but I went there from first grade all the way through 12th grade. So mm-hmm. it was the only school, especially since I failed out of college, like the only school I really went to. I'm still friends with some girlfriends I met there when I was like eight. But, you know, it's a very homogenized culture. And so I always thought different weird stuff was cool because it was like, oh, I haven't seen that before. I've seen so much of this in front of me, the mainstream. And some of it I like and some of it I don't like, you know, it feels very restrictive and judgmental in a way that alternative left of center stuff doesn't feels more sort of like welcoming and open. I'm the only 
female movie executive. As I was saying earlier, when you see representation, you're like, oh, there's me. So of course, one of the great things that we've seen in the past few years is more of that for all sorts of people. Talk about a project that you've made that you think exemplifies your taste. Yeah. And then just the whole production process from start to finish. Sure. So this is something I read... The first time I read it, it was maybe 10 years ago, and it was a sample for the writer Dylan Meyer to work on another project. I was looking for a writer for something, and the manager was like, oh, you should meet Dylan. And I read it, and I was like, this is, I love this. And I met Dylan, and we instantly clicked and as people. And then I was like, oh, this is really fun, and I love this. But it was with another production company. And there was a director, the principal of the production company was attached to direct it. And she was like, well, I would really rather make this one of you guys. It's a female stoner comedy. Right. So a friend, stoner yeah. friendship comedy kind of reeks yeah, of like us. A you know what I mean? Production. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, I would rather make it with you guys if possible. And so it was like a lot of back and forth of us sort of, you know, do you guys really want to make this and whatever. So we were able to get it out of that production company mm-hmm. and over to us. And many years of working on the script we had a director attached we had initial conversations with actors we hadn't yet taken it out to any studios for financing and we were just sort of getting ourselves together for that and we usually take a long time before we go out which i'm sure a lot of people hate right and say we're slow and they're not wrong but that's because you only get one shot to do it and then once you do it and people pass you know if it's like you're running to go let's why are we still wearing the script it's fine enough it's good enough and you're like is it it's not because it's not good Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just like, is it good enough? Like yeah, the bar is really push. The bar is really high. I, I know a lot of people like to move quickly, but if you move fast and then it doesn't set up, like what did you do it for? When you could just work on it for another month and maybe yeah. you put the work in it that gets it sold. You know, if I think, you want to move fast and break things, you're in the wrong city. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very true. So yeah, we worked on the script. We had another director who's having initial casting meetings. And then we went to go make an American pickle in 2018 in Pittsburgh. And Mm -hmm. Dylan Meyer, who wrote the script, was on set with us as a joke pitcher and just an on-set writer. We like to have both, if possible, the writer of whatever we're shooting, plus another writer on set just for ideas, whether that's jokes or just emotional beats, you know, just to help. And is that a person who would have had a pass at the script prior? Or is it just like hey, we're just going to be producing this. We just need you on set as an extra. It's more brain. It's more the latter, but certainly they would have read it and given thoughts, but not yeah. someone who like the writer needs to listen to that. You know what yeah. I mean? And so Dylan was our onset writer for American Pickle. And she was like, you know, I would really, if I had my druthers, I would really like to direct Wrong Girls. And we were like, you should direct it. Yeah. At the time... She had, and I think she had done the short by then. She's directed one short. Mm-hmm. So she hasn't directed a, a feature yet. And we were like, we'll support you. I think part of what's great about the past few years and how things have shifted is women are getting chances to direct their own scripts that men were getting in the same frequency now. Now it's like, oh, she wrote the script. She wants to direct it. That has a little bit more momentum than like it used to. Titillating. Yes. <laughs> So we were like, great, so you should direct it. So we had a conversation with the director who was attached. And we were like, listen, you're great. And we love you. But it's her script. And it's about two women. And she's a woman. And mm-hmm. it probably should be directed by a woman. And she wants to do it. And to his credit, the director was like, totally get it. All good. And he stepped off. And then she was officially attached. And then 
then came the process of, okay, now you're the director. Now what script work are we going to do, maybe? Right. And who are the actors and what do we need to do to try to take it out? What is the story with her short? Did something happen with that? I think that there's kind of this like moment right now that's sort of similar to the 90s, which is people are making a short film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of their feature. And then if that gets picked up in the festival circuit, that can result in larger development deals. Yes, for sure. Is that something that happened with her? Or was it just like she just made this short and you guys liked it? Yeah, she directed the short so she because she wanted to direct something. Right. And I don't know that it went more than her having made it. I'm not sure if it was in a festival or not. I can't yeah. remember. But that wasn't as much a part of it in trying to get that made. But yeah, got her experience as a director on set. You I know? will want to watch that short. Oh, okay, great. Okay. <laughs> um... And so, yeah, she directed that and then we did some more script work and have gone out to some actors and now we have Kristen Stewart and Alia Shawkat attached. And it's a story about two early 30s coming of age. You know, everybody comes of age a little later now than they did. (laughs) Frickin' Frack best friends, Romy and Michelle's very codependent friendship in their own world sort of thing always high you know a very sort of pineapple express scenario Mm -hmm. one of them is dating a guy and they're talking about the alia character moving out from living with the Kristen character Kristen's character doesn't know that she goes out to a punk show one night gets drunk ends up with a briefcase not meant for her meant for someone who looks like her and she takes it home and it's, it's sort a of classic mix up. It's a classic mix up. It's a dumb and dumber ask, uh oh, now these people are chasing us for their briefcase. We don't even know we're being chased. They don't they think that the girls have more to do with what's in the briefcase than they do. Yeah. So it's a fun sort of actiony romp around LA and what's in the briefcase has maybe a telekinetic power thing happening. So there's a fun genre thing with these two girls who are like, hi, don't know what's going on. Very much out kind of Kind of big Lebowski vibes. Kind of big Lebowski vibes. I love that. Yes. So. That's cool. That was something I read many years ago. You know, listen, everything that I've worked on has my taste in some way, right? Right. But given, you know, I read this a long time ago and we've really been moving it through and it looks like we're going to be shooting it later this year. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally my taste. You know, it's like, I love the female friendship for sure. Romy and Michelle's is a great, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I brought it up earlier already. It's such a great movie. And I love Dylan's writing. I think it's super funny, very grounded, but also has that sort of like Diablo Cody whip smart thing where you're like, not quite as much where you're like, whoa, people don't really talk like that, which I find <laughs> sometimes with some of Diablo's work, no shade, love it. Saw a young adult the other night, great movie. But Dylan has like a very sweet and silly tone. And I think silly is a lot. I, I tend to find silly things very funny. Yeah. And, you know, it's always great to see the worst person for any given situation in that situation. Lots of comedy comes from that. I thought like the story was really sweet. And we always laugh because like it's a subversive movie just by nature of it's women stoners. We don't really have a lot of that. And and they're out there and we need to be seen. Yes. And we need to be heard. Mm -hmm. And there should be movies. Exactly. I know. I'm like speaking as one. It's like, great, let's make it, you know? Yeah. Um, So yeah, I would say Visibility for women stoners. That's it. That's what my- We're going to start marching. Yes. But we're too tired. To do it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Smokers long. Yeah. 
Can you, can we backtrack for a second? Sure. And talk a little bit about how you got into Point Grey and your career development here. Yes. So as I mentioned, I was freelancing in production offices on features. Mm -hmm. And when you work as a PA in the office, you do runs to and from set. And when you're in prep, everyone's in the office and you're like, there's all this activity and there's all these meetings and you're sort of seeing the movie be planned. And then everybody leaves to go shoot it. And then you're just sort of in the office and I'm like, well, hey, where'd everybody go? I want to make the thing. Wait, come back. So when you go to set, now you're there and there's all the people. snacks all day. Yeah, it was a lot of snacks, truly. But, but like free food, so. So it's fine. Yeah. But yes, when you go to, I'd go to set and I'd always like linger and watch them shoot the thing. And then you're like, okay, wait, who are those people that are like at Video Village? They're like, they're not the writer, the director. Yeah. They're like, they're in the mix. You know, like people, they're saying stuff for people to listen to them, right? And they're affecting change. Mm-hmm. And they're also not like corporate. Like they're not agents or studios or something. They're not wearing like suits, you know? And I'm like, who are those people? And it's like, oh, those are the producers from the production company. And I'm like, cool. Okay. What do they do? And I have found, as you are with me right now, when you ask people to talk about their job, when they love their job or they do what we do, everyone's like, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. I'll talk about it. I'll tell you all about it. So asking them, like, what is your job? And learning about what is now my job. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, that sounds fun and hard, but fun. And I think I have good taste and people should listen to me. So, uh, yeah, thanks. So how do I get that job? And the answer is kind of like, okay. For me, I was like, well, I just need to get out of the production office and get some experience. I knew I didn't want to work at like an agency or a management company, which is what a lot of people who have my job do. Too corporate, too suit. No, thank you. And also a track that I think is really pushed by collegiate atmospheres. Right. So when you're studying RTVF, radio, television, film at like Northwestern, for example, all those kids go out for the same job. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I didn't have that. So like, I kind of, I knew those existed, but I also like, that wasn't, I wouldn't even know where to start to get an agency job for me at that time, you know? So I'm like, okay, I just need to get out of the production office and get some experience. I'll try to be an assistant for like a writer, a director, a producer, because when you work in prep in the production office, you meet the writer, the director, the producer. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, one of these people, I almost said one of these fools. One of these fools is gonna need <laughs> is gonna need an assistant and I'll be right there. You know? Right. I think so much to getting a job is often just proximity, you know? Don't don't be annoying, don't be an idiot, and be close by. And like that can often get you very far. Right. And so I was like, okay, one of these people that I meet, I'll just stay in touch with them and they'll need an assistant or they'll know someone who needs an assistant. And they'll go, Oh right, this girl I've you know, you should yeah. talk to her at least. So I was freelancing, going from feature to feature and just staying in touch with people I'd worked with before and trying to get good FaceTime with the writer, director, producers I was meeting. And I got a job in the office on the Green Hornet. I met Evan and Seth and Weaver, who was working as Seth's assistant at the time. And that was a very elongated job for me. I was on that job for 14 months, which is crazy as like a freelance. Right. I I started as, I think this production secretary, and then I ended as the APOC, which is assistant production And that was because the production link was extended, correct? So when I first started, there was a different director on, and then he dropped out. And then there was a director search that happened, but they kept me on because they didn't want to lose the production and costume designer. So they mm-hmm. stayed on. So I was like, there. I just kept the office maintained, and like yeah. if they needed runs done or something... So there was six months or something where I was just like hanging in the office with these two super cool people, just like... 
uh, oh, and I guess I'm going to go get some more of your art pencils. He'd be like, okay. And I'd be like, okay, bye. Like, Are you still was, homies with them? I'm not. But if I saw them, I would I would definitely be like, yeah. oh my God, Owen, Kim. <laughs> so anyway, so I was there for, then they found a new director. And then prep started and things kind of picked back up. But I was around, just like around. Weaver and I got a lot of FaceTime and Evan and Seth less so. But still, I was around a lot. Um, so I just got to know them a little bit. And when the job was over, I was like, you know, Weaver, if you guys ever need an assistant, oh, please think of me. I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. If you know of anybody who's looking for an assistant. And I just stayed in touch with him. I think I worked two other jobs when Green Hornet wrapped. I worked on two other movies. And then they went to go shoot 50-50, which right. is the first point grade movie. And that was in Vancouver. And when they were coming back, I got an email from Weaver. And he was like, hey, we're starting this company. And we were looking for an assistant and wanted to know if you wanted to interview. And I was like, yes. Um, and then I didn't hear from him for a few months. And I was like, oh, okay, that's one of the million of jobs that I thought might happen that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then one day we were in, emailed me and he was like, hey, you know, we thought we were like, we were going to go through this assistant process earlier. And because we knew you, we didn't want to bring you in when we were first meeting people, but right. do you want to come in and interview to be evidence as assistant? So I think I went in like two days later or something and the interview was supposed to be at the office and that they were working out of. And then they moved it to Seth's house. I went to Seth's house and interviewed there with Evan, Seth, and Weaver. And it was nine minutes long or something. And I was like, either I crushed it or they were like, never mind. We She sucks. Our bad. Our bad. You know, it was one or the other. Either I, it was, I crushed it either way. And when I showed up for the interview at Seth's house, I had like my resumes printed out in like a cute folder. And I was like, hmm. Do you see my cute folder? I think I like pointed it out and they like laughed. And for some reason, we were, we always talked on my cell phone and then he called my work phone. So I picked him up. I was like, production, this is Alex. And Weaver was like, I have two guys who here who want to ask you something. And I was like, oh my God, I fucking did it. Yeah. And they were like, do you want to come work with us? <laughs> and I was like, Cute. oh my God, I feel like I just won American Idol. <laughs> and they laughed and I was like, great, get off the phone. Great. <laughs> just get out. The George Costanza leave on a high note. So... Anyway, so yeah, so that was 12 years ago this month. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. That's a long fucking Thanks. time. It's a long time, I know. It's pretty crazy. Can you talk about being methodical in your networking mm. and also a chiller? Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> it's interesting because like, I never really thought of myself as someone who was methodical about networking. It was more like noticing well in freelancing I'm getting job I'm only getting jobs because I worked with someone and then they bring me on to the next job right Right. like cold calling or emailing for free for production office jobs I never found success with that Mm -hmm. it was only because had you tried it yeah for sure and it failed yes and so like I'd only found success because oh I'd worked with some or someone I'd worked with had put my name up you know what I mean so it's always like a connection Mm -hmm. Um, and part of that is, you know, the old adage of like, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, I mean, it certainly is what, you know, so don't get, that's not right. But the who, you know, part makes sense if only because like you trust people, you know, you trust, if I asked you to put someone up for a job, I would trust them over someone who just sent me an email because I trust you more than just a random email. Yeah. So it's not as much as it feels like a little bit, as you brought up earlier, like Nepo baby ish. And certainly that's part of it. But it's more like, yeah, if you know someone and they suggest someone for a job, why wouldn't you take that, you know? Yeah. In any case. It's like they're vetted. Exactly. You you wouldn't take someone without confirming with your friends that they're okay. Right, right. Yeah, that's what you always do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, part of what I found is, how am I, 
isolating sort of like what is working that I continued to get hired from people I've worked with. Right. And one of them is truly whether you're working in the production office or you're sitting on set, the hours are long, it's cold, it's hot, you're tired, it's whatever, it's late mm-hmm. at night, it's early in the morning. It's situations where like it's easy to be annoyed and grumpy. Yeah. And so when you work with someone, you have to sit next to someone all day long for months for 12 hours a day. And you don't every night go, I fucking hate that. They're so fucking annoying. You know, if you don't do that, then like, wow, that's a treasure and a treat. And that's yeah. why you're like, great. I know you can get the work done. You don't annoy the shit out of me. Please come to the next job with me. Yeah. Right. And figuring out some of the natural nervousness and excitement that I have that I could bring to a job is not helpful, especially when I was younger and more of when I was working in TV where I was just so nervous because I wanted to do a good job and get it right. And I've always been intimidated by titles or people who are in these positions of power, whether it's the showrunner or whoever. And so I'd be so nervous and they're just like, relax, you know, like, and maybe they wouldn't say that, but they're saying that with their body, like, you know, they're saying it maybe not out of their mouths, but they're saying it. And I'm like, I can't. There's a certain level of yes, of respect and whatever. You're not like homies, but it's okay to be a little bit Take it down. Yeah, take it down a little bit. So that energy that you feel, then they feel, right? Even if they're not noticing they feel it, they can. So when you're nervous, it makes them on edge. So as much as it was hard, it's just like you've got to breathe and take it easy and try to be cool because like, hey, man, we're all making a thing. And it doesn't mean I didn't do things with urgency or sometimes when there's, you know, whether it was like a big office, like a meeting we were setting up and the printer wouldn't work. And, oh, my God, we need these sides or whatever the fuck, like... Again, it doesn't mean not moving with urgency. Truly what it was was figuring out that I got better responses from people the more sort of like... Yourself. Even ke- myself and even keel. That was the other thing is the more you're like, oh, wow, people actually want my unique point of view. I don't have to try to give the right answer. Right. It's like my answer is my answer. And what they're looking for is my answer. And yeah. so... You know, there's some things that maybe, you know, they'd be like, that was stupid, you know? And I'm sure there are things I say to Evan and Seth right now that they're like, that note sucks, you know? Sure. (laughs) Not every note I'm going to give is perfect. Like, what the fuck? Sometimes we just disagree. Sometimes I find things funny, they don't, and vice versa. So that's okay. But I think, like, my perspective is only mine, and that's what's helpful about working with people who have different tastes and who think differently is and you get all those different perspectives to make things the best they can be. So the more you're just like... This is who I am, and I'm going to sort of try to take it easy while taking things seriously, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like I was forced into the networking idea because that was how I was getting jobs freelancing from feature to feature in a production office. And then it sort of naturally was like, well, that's how I'll get out of here, you know? Like, I'll get out of the production office. And there are people who work for many years in the production office and love it and want to be there, so I don't want to – no shade to it. Every time I walk into a production office, I'm like – Oh, you know, and there's a little bit of like, I'm back home because I spent years in production offices. Right. But yeah, it was like, okay, if the way that I've gotten, you know, to have a little foothold and be working and pretty steadily is through networking and people, then I'll find my way out of here in my next job by networking with people. And what did it look like? Is it reaching out to people and asking them to grab drinks or coffee or something or like grab lunch? Or is it just a little bit more like social in the office? Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I didn't really engage with people until the end of the show. Part of it was like you're social in the office and engage and then you see them on set and you sort of chat a little bit. I don't think I ever asked anyone to get, I don't even think it occurred to me to ask anyone to get lunch or coffee or a drink or breakfast or some shit. It's the Northwestern yeah. <laughs> brain. But I'm like, 
I need to be writing and doing right, my comedy. And right. if I'm getting drinks every night, I'm going to be fucking, fucking broken, depressed. Yeah, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't start doing that till I started working as an assistant here, but I never yeah. asked anyone for that. Part of it is like, you know, it's tough to ask someone who you're trying to get something out of to go do something with you. But you did start doing it at some point. Well, I never asked people out to go do stuff. What right. I what I did was towards the end of the production, you know, email my resume and be like, hey, if you ever, if okay. you if you're looking it. for an assistant or you know someone who's looking for an assistant, I'm right. looking to be a writer, director, producer's assistant, you know? Mm-hmm. And then those people who I'd formed, whatever those like two or three people at most, right, that I'd had a good rapport mm-hmm. that would maybe be in a position to help me that I felt comfortable emailing, the next job, once I finish that one, shoot in my updated resume. Hey, I just finished another job, so just wanted to check in. But you can't do that too much because then it gets annoying, yeah. right? And you can't also then be like, hey, just wanted to see if you heard something. Ah, no, sorry. It's tough because you yeah. want to stay on people's radar, but you don't want to be so on the radar that they can't get you off, you know? Yeah. And especially when you're asking someone for something, which is to help me get a job. Oh, it's hard to be like hey, you helped me find a job yet? And they're like, no, dog. That's why you have to, it's a very fine line. Right. But that was why I only ever checked in again when I actually had something new to offer, which was I just finished a new job. So look, here's my updated resume, you know? Oh, cool. That's really smart. Yeah. And so that was what I was doing. It was just staying in touch with those people and sending them my updated resume. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing. I worked two other jobs after the Green Hornet, but I just stayed in touch with Weaver when I worked those two jobs. Here's my updated resume. If you yeah. or anybody else is looking for an assistant, I'm looking to get out of the production office and be a director, writer, producer's assistant. Did you keep a list of people to reach out no, to? No, I should have. In the yes, noggin. I did. Well, I just kept going back. You know, you think about like this job, who are those people? And then this job, right. who are those people? I should have. Yeah. Uh, that's smart. <laughs> that was what I would do senior year of college because I started off working in real estate development. Oh, okay. And I was like had my whole Excel sheet and mm. I'd be like contacted on love this that. day. Love like, that. Smart. Like- <laughs> it's smart to keep track. Yeah. And it, it worked. It worked. Right. It worked. No, it's good to keep track. I didn't yeah. keep track that well, but that's a good idea. But I definitely feel like being methodical in that way made me feel like I had to put on a persona when I was reaching out to someone because mm. it was very much like you have to foam at the mouth for the job and it wasn't yeah. something that I actually even wanted. Right. And so then it's, I love this thing that mm. I haven't loved in two years right. anymore. Fuck. Yeah. You know? I totally get that. It's tough because I suppose part of what I was doing, you know, I still wanted to work in the production office if that was the job I needed to have. So mm-hmm. like, I didn't want to not try to get those jobs too, but those were quote unquote easier to get just because that was what I was that was what my job was. So I'm meeting those right. people who could hire me for the next gig all the time. Whereas like writer, director, producer, assistant job, that was a whole new field I was trying to get into. Right. And so that was something I did that, yeah, I needed to reach out to try to make happen. And I'm sure part of the reason why Weaver asked if I wanted to interview was because I just like stayed in touch, you know? Yeah. And I'd left a good impression, I'm sure, or else they wouldn't have wanted me to meet. Right. But part of that also came from checking in again, it's so hard to know the line of not checking in too much. It's yeah. really difficult. People will get annoyed and just be like, I don't even want to dog. I don't even want to help you anymore. You know, <laughs> get you your check ugly face out of here. You, che- you, checked, you checked in so much that like I'm, I'm checked out, you know? Yeah. And, and it's hard because like, 
you're eager and you want something and you're like, is there something I can do? And and it's all coming totally. from a good place, but it's tough because again, what you're at, you're asking them to help you get a job. So like when you're asking someone to help yeah. you do something, it's like, you know, a soft touch. And also I think like bonds form over time. Yes. So it's okay if it's a slow start. That's fine. When you first meet someone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That doesn't mean that you it can't pump grow. the brakes sometimes. Mm-hmm. The amount of time that's considered a short amount of time is very different yeah. than for like a person who's in the frantic mm-hmm. mode of applying for a job. Yeah. It's very, very you know? different. That's why it's like soft touch because yeah. like, yeah, I mean, I checked in again. I think it was after there was a horror movie called The Apparition I did. Mm-hmm. And then I worked on The Muppets with Jason Siegel and Amy Adams. I think those were the two jobs I did in between and then getting hired here. And I think I checked in at the end of both of those jobs. No, no, Muppets is when I heard from Weaver. So I checked in with him maybe, it was probably twice, but you know, that's over a year and a half or something. And was this something that was intuitive to you? Because I feel like this is such a tricky thing to navigate when you don't have someone who's experienced guiding you. For sure. Yeah, I think part of it was just seeing how I had been responded to with even just production office jobs, trying to get those, you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like the more you check in, you know, you can just feel that like, and I think I have a pretty high EQ and so maybe some of it is more intuitive for me than for some other people. Right. But I also think part of what I got from the production office is like, oh man, you can learn how to read a room really well. And especially when you're on the lower rung, people are happy to let you know if they're not happy with you, you know? And so feeling like, okay, that didn't go well. Oh, okay, that didn't work, you know? Were there lessons you learned the hard way? Yeah, I'm sure there were jobs that I tried to get that I checked in too much and they were just like, this bitch is fucking annoying. Yeah. I'm sure. What those were, I don't know, because I didn't get them and I don't remember. (laughs) There's so many jobs I applied for I didn't get. Right. Like, oh my gosh. And whether that was through like, you know, the sort of random entertainment 411 or something. There was like all these like random websites I used to check and just apply through. Or that was through somebody who was like, oh, we're hiring for this and you should send your resume. And then I just never heard back, you know, that happened a lot too. That was what I thought happened with being the guy's assistant was just that. It just just didn't happen. Yeah. I didn't hear from them for a little bit. So I was like, okay, well, that's another one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You just have to like put out a bunch of feelers. I had a professor in college. I was taking a project manage a construction project management mm, class mm. he was 75 years old and he'd walk into the room every single day and write a different acronym on the board and he'd be like what does it mean <laughs> and then he'd make us go around and like say what it meant and one day i'll never forget he walks into the room and he writes on the board f-a-t-m-f-t-j and he makes us all go around the room and guess what it stands for and we're all like guessing to yeah, right. construction whatever and he goes foam at the mouth for the job. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Intense. Intense. Because, well, I guess it's kind of similar in certain ways, construction, because you're bidding for a deal mm-hmm. or for like a job. Right. You know? And so it's kind of similar to making movies in, yeah. a, in that way. And like, it's just like, what's your price? Like, how much can you get it done for? And there's certainly jobs in entertainment that you should foam at the mouth for the job for right and whether that's and i can't speak to this because i wasn't like an agent's assistant or you're a director and you're pitching your movie passion is part of what goes a long Mm -hmm. way i think on you know a lot of jobs where you're spending a lot of time with the same people 
again, just being someone that they want to spend time around or not even just at first not want to, just like accepting, not not wanting to spend time together, you know? Because again, you're on set and it's freezing and it's 5 a.m. and then you're going to be there until 6. So like if, you know, your boss doesn't like you, if you don't like your boss, you're like, this is fucking brutal. But if you get along, then like, okay, it can be hard, but you can have a good time, you know? like. And then you're like in it together, and yeah. that's a special bond in a way of right. like being at five a.m. in the, cold. the freezing. Exactly. So I think I found like, oh wow, part of what's helpful and both a skill that maybe I've honed that I already had was like, people can like to hang out with me for twelve hours. That's I could use that to my advantage by being by having a job where you're around the same people a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been on how many sets with the guys? This is the end. The interview, I mean, Sausage Party wasn't a set. <laughs> Disaster Artist, Pam and Tommy, Future Man, Pickle, Seven. Wow. So, you know, that's and hours and hours and hours. And again, wet, cold, hot, all of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Did I say Pam and Tommy? Anyways, yeah. Seven. So it's a lot. It's a lot. And yeah, I can't imagine... If I didn't like Becky or something, who's my assistant, I'd yeah. be fucking screwed. You know, like yeah. I don't even know how I would do it because even when you're not on set, then you're in the office and you talk so much, you know, and this person is also for someone like for the people that are Evan and Seth, like, you know, you're a little bit gatekeepery for them. Yeah. There's also times when like you might have 2,000, I have so many questions. I have, so, I have personal life questions. I've got work questions. And everyone's coming to me being like, did you get that answer yet? Oh, you've got to pick and choose your moments. And you're their assistant. You know? like, that's <laughs> right, that's going to be a problem. Oh, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Do you have any personal grounding practices? I occasionally will meditate, but not enough to call it a practice. Right. I live in Laurel Canyon. I take my dog on long sort of walks, but they're like hike walks because yeah, it's up that's, the hill. That's nice. That's I do grounding. that a lot. What else do I do? <laughs> What's like a lot. day for you look like? What time are you kind of waking? Yeah. I'm sure every day is different. different sure. Like a typical day. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually curious. up at like 730. Yeah. And, you know, I take my dog on his morning walk. And when do you respond to your first email? Well, it depends on what it is. Because sometimes as soon as I wake up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll be working when I wake up and I mm-hmm. work until I go to sleep. And sometimes there's stuff where you're just like, I'll answer that tomorrow or whatever. Right. You know what I mean, like, I'll get to yeah. that later. And then there's some stuff that you're like, shit, I got to do. I got to do this. Mm-hmm. Or like, fuck, they're three hours ahead or whatever it is. Right. And then I often, after work, will watch something as like a comp, a comparison, right? When you're talking about movies, mm-hmm. you're like, what's a comp for this movie? Yeah. So I'll watch stuff or things that are inspiration or similar to, you know, a lot of times you're like, well, we're trying to do this thing in this movie. These two friends have a fight. Like, how did these two friends fight in that movie? And what was that based on? And then you watch it and you're like, oh, okay. And whether that inspires or you're just like, we should do that. Can that you a talk good idea. about something that's inspired you recently? Because, mm. okay, I have a show okay. that has me glowing. Okay. Ginny and Georgia, but the, only the first season. Okay. I haven't watched it, but I know it. Yeah. And the thing is with Ginny and Georgia is the way that this was described to me was like, I'm not going to say that it's good, mm, but it right. is the best show ever. Yeah. I get that. And that is something that I think describes it so perfectly. Mm. And there's one scene where it's like after the big play in the finale and all of the conflict comes to a head mm-hmm. in the locker room hallway. Yeah. And I was just like sitting there with my notes like this is perfect right (laughs) I know I the example that comes to mind that wasn't that long ago I went home to Dallas 
for Christmas. And as many of us did, I watched Wednesday with my niece. Totally. So we're working on a reboot and there's some things in Wednesday. I was like, oof, this, oh, I, this is, this is great. We should do that. We right. should do that. Can you talk about one of the best pieces of advice that you've received? Hmm. Gosh, specific advice. I can give you some examples. Okay. I mean, I think for me, foam at the mouth for the job Mm -hmm. was definitely one of them. Something else that I really think about is if you don't have time, then you don't have priorities. Mm -hmm. And that piece of advice restructured my whole life. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice. I'm trying to think. There's a way, and this maybe not wasn't advice so much as just general life teaching. Yeah. Which is sort of so much of the job specifically being evidence that's assistant when I first started was just like being around just being just being there you Mm -hmm. know just like hanging out just hey remember I'm still here hi you know and just sort of having a presence yeah and that means yes filling a role or or do you know being someone that doesn't exist in the office or among the group already Mm -hmm. but more than that it's just like you know giving yourself the slow time you were talking about that sort of like bond that yeah. takes time and letting something build like don't expect for things to, to like have a quick easy very close rapport and bond instantly that's not how right. that works and if you have that with someone it's probably not real you know yeah like it takes a while to and it's, it's okay so true to just like let it occur mm-hmm. naturally and you can especially when you're someone's assistant you want to please them and please everybody and so you're trying to make it happen and yeah. get in there and you have to let it occur just by going through experiences together by being freezing in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. at 5 a.m you yeah. know like you can't rut you can't create that you can't manufacture the time that you can spend that that will create much more of a a bond and an understanding and a trust and a respect than trying to like force it in you know a few weeks it just like is impossible right yeah cool and then can you share two things that you're grateful for Mm, two things I'm grateful for I am grateful I mean yes to be working at Point Grey but to get a little bit more specific to be making things I can be proud of with people who are great and who are like good friends but also you know Evan Seth and Weaver are like super close friends of mine they're also my bosses, you know, like there's a lot of dynamics at play and I feel very grateful for that because it certainly did not, when I got the job as Evan Seth's assistant, which was essentially everyone's assistant because the company was just starting, this was dream case scenario yeah. what ended up happening. So I'm kind of like, holy shit, it happened. <laughs> um, so I'm very grateful for that. And I'll say this, that's my bosses, but those are also the people, the people that had started after me, the other executives and mm-hmm. asset coordinators and director, whatever the titles are, assistants, you know, everyone here is like super supportive. So I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very grateful for, I mean, I mentioned it at the beginning when I talked about like my mom and she was super supportive of like, go see if it is going to work yeah. instead of being like, you want to move where to do what based on a phone call. That's kind of a wild move. But she was super supportive then and was su- supportive the whole way through with all of my jobs at the times I wasn't working. There were times I wasn't working, you know, in between freelance yeah. jobs. And she was never like, well, when are you going to come home? When are you going to give it up and move back to Dallas or something? Like, that was never a conversation we had. And for me, that wasn't ever on the table. I never thought about moving back. Whenever, even the time, the time that I, like, wasn't working, I was never like, well... Is it time to like pack it in? Like to do what? You know, like for what? Like what's the better option? I mean, you know, 
not knowing where your next job is going to come from, but being here and the possibility of it being in TV and film is better than moving home and being like, I guess I'll work at a florist. What am I doing? You know? So I think, um, yeah, I'm super grateful for that. Yeah. I think, I guess you've really made me rethink how I was thinking about the whole networking thing, which Mm. is really not about networking. It's about having a support system that you can lean on and then building that support system out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think often we all forget that like timing is such a big part of anything and that's something we can't control. Like I just met them at a great time. I met them right before they went to make the first movie for their production company and then they were going to be looking for an assistant, you know? like you had no fucking clue. I had no idea. And that was just like, look at the draw. And so some of that is like, a little bit with the not forcing stuff is because like I couldn't have created that situation. It just existed and I got very lucky for it. I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was just the right time. Yeah. So it's like keep your head down, do your work and keep it real. Yeah. And you know, it's one thing to like have an idea of where you want to go and have some idea of how you want to totally. get there. But also, you know, I was never like, well, these are the four steps I'm going to take to get to where I want, you know, like I just was like, well, I guess I'll do this. And I got to, I I don't like this anymore. I can't wait for it to unfold. Yes. Yes. I didn't. That was not my experience. No, I don't have a five-year plan. Right. No, no. That would be impossible at this point in time. Yeah. Okay. Final question. Yes. Big fuck you. Who do I want to give a big fuck you to? A big fuck you to anyone from any sort of marginalized group who thinks there's only allowed to be one of them in any given space. Yeah. Um, I'm a woman and I felt a lot of that when I was younger and it was really disappointing. And so I tried to be very aware to not do that. And I know you said it didn't have to be something related to work, but I made it something related to work. (laughs) It's okay. Um, We'll allow it. Yeah. Thank you. But yeah, it was just always, it was always so disappointing and it happened a lot. And I hope it happens less now. I mean, I think again, the past few years in entertainment and the world at large is there's been a lot more conversations and I think progress not done, but then there was when I was first starting out. So are you saying that you felt competition with the other women around you or that they felt competition towards you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's the bringing the ladder up. Like Mm -hmm. I've gotten up here now, if the ladder is still down and you could come up here, then what happens to me? So I'm going to make sure you can't get up here so that I can maintain my position. Yeah. Yeah. That was really disappointing whenever, when I was honestly like, I'm not trying to take your job, you know, like I just want my own thing. This is invaluable advice for, I think, so many people. Oh, that's nice. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah. And um, good luck to everyone. Good luck to everyone. Good luck to everyone. Good luck to everyone. That's a good note to end on. Great. All, All right. right. Thank you. Thank you. Hooray. There you have it, folks. That was Alex McAtee. Before we go, I'm going to share a quote with you guys that is now sitting above me in a collage on my desk. And... I found this quote in a Keith Haring magazine. So it's talking about the art and DJ scene in New York City in the 80s. So the era of Basquiat and Warhol and and the Chelsea Hotel and just such iconic art world shit. And, And this is specifically talking about music, but I think you can extend this to all art forms and the creative energy of clusters. And I'm not exactly sure who said this because I cut it out of a magazine, so I don't have the tag on it and I couldn't find it on Google either. Okay, I'm gonna say the quote. It's a bit of luck, a bit of being in the right place at the right time, 
but also not just being there, but being part of it. It's about good fucking music and breaking the rules. There shouldn't be any rules, but unfortunately there are, so you have to break them. That is just so fucking rock and roll. And I think that's a great note to end on, given this past interview. Thank you so much for listening to The Big F.U. See you next time. Oh, oh, oh.